Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 8, Becoming Free, part 4. Let it go. So this episode is on forgiveness. What it means to forgive, because there are lots of definitions out there. Why it's so difficult for some people to forgive others and ourselves, as well as the benefits to forgiveness And I also want to uh, put it right out there that this is, from a psychological standpoint, a secular standpoint, and certainly I would encourage any of you listening, you know, to work this into your belief system. So if you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, you identify as, you know, spiritual or, or whatever it is, to work, you know, our secular discussion into your own faith, if you have one, and make it work for you. There are a lot of definitions of forgiveness out there, for sure. And I'm thinking of my own personal favorite, which came from Claudia Black years ago, back in the 80s, as she was a leading pioneer in the adult children of alcoholics movement. And she came to speak where I went to my undergraduate college at St. Mike's in Burlington, Vermont, and she came and just did this, this fantastic talk. You know, I was 18 years old at the time and just really soaking this, just soaking up every word of what she was saying. And I loved how she kind of cleared that up for me. She said, you know, lots of people think that forgiveness means that the perpetrator or wrongdoer gets a pass. And she said, absolutely not. This doesn't mean anything that that person did was okay or justified. Absolutely not. And she also touched on sort of the old cliche of forgiving means forgetting. And she also said, absolutely not. And I'll say, you know, in 2020 terms, being as with all this technology, a lot of people think the mind, you know, is like a computer. And though it is in some ways, we don't have a delete button. So especially with horrible memories of past injury, even on the extreme end, trauma, we can't just, you know, get rid of the visual. So forgiving can't mean forgetting or it wouldn't happen at all. And I'll never forget what Claudia Black said, because I was kind of locked into that, like that it gave people a pass and blah, 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 and it meant the relationship had to be healed. And she said, no, forgiving has nothing, not a thing to do with forgetting. Instead, Forgiveness has everything to do with remembering and choosing to move forward. What many people don't realize also is that by hanging on to the anger, the resentment, the grudges, the blaming, we're going to get into all this uh, shortly, is that what feels powerful, you know, hanging on to all that and I'll teach them, I'll show them, or, you know, I'm going to prevent them from thinking it was okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's We're actually doing the opposite and giving up our power, you know, a piece of, our, of, our, of us. We're giving that up because if it's not enough, you know, whatever the wrongdoer or perpetrator did, now we're choosing to reside there. So we're giving them like another piece, you know, and, and on a silver platter, like, here you go. When they could be, you know, walking around, you know, having a great life, not even you know, aware of the suffering we're putting ourselves through. 
So before going one inch further, we've got to, I think, sort of, you know, discuss the things that we're, that we are hanging on to before we can then talk about letting what we're hanging on to go. And definitely the foundation for sure is shame. And just to to kind of clear up the definition, because sometimes there's confusion with how how shame differs from guilt, because people do tend to get them confused, is guilt is an action word. Guilt has the message of, I made a mistake. And of course, guilt's job is, you know, to prevent us from, you know, starting vicious rumors, punching somebody in the schnozzy, even if they, we felt like they very much deserved it. Guilt has that kind of, you know, don't do this, you know, internal conscience check kind of thing. Whereas shame, the message is uh, deeper than that. So once again, guilt says I made a mistake, whereas shame says I am the mistake. And shame, in my opinion, is the spiritual and emotional equivalent of drinking turpentine for breakfast instead of orange juice. And if we could sort of, you know, heal the shame across the world, uh, I think there would be very few, if any, problems. And shame has a very direct connection to blame, which I've often referred to as a shame-blame game. And it keeps us locked in to this seemingly never-ending vicious cycle that often helps us sort of dodge accountability, too. We'll get to that in a second. So Robert Karen, in his book, The Forgiving Self, uh, says that the need to blame ourselves or others runs so deeply at times that it can feel like a basic necessity. Part of the need arises as a defense against shame. As shame encroaches, fending it off requires that someone else be proved the villain. We have to nail them to their crimes, make them confess, make them feel bad and promise to do better. Only then can we finally have the satisfaction of being free of the denunciation we direct at ourselves. That was a whole lot of knowledge and truth right there because shame is so toxic and so excruciating as an emotion that we as human beings will do just about anything to get rid of it, even if this means dumping it, dumping it onto someone else. And one way to do that is to project our shame onto other people. So in relation to what Robert Karen was just saying is we often blame other people in an attempt to unload and protect ourselves from our own toxic shame. Of course, people use the word project, you know, a lot out in the world. And where it really stemmed from was Freud's old uh, defense mechanisms. And those, as far as in the Freudian context, defense mechanisms were unconscious. So in other words, we have no idea when we're projecting our shame or whatever else on 
to somebody else. And though I am going to do a, a whole episode on shame because it's such a huge topic, probably at least one, for our purposes here with forgiveness, <clears throat> I want to kind of just give you an idea of, you know, as far as family of origin and childhood, where a lot of these deep-seated shame messages come from. And there's a good book called Letting Go of Shame by Ronald and Patricia Potter Efron. And they say that some of the most common kinds of behavior that produce shame from our families of origin may be messages we are not good, not good enough, not lovable, or that we do not belong or shouldn't exist. The threat of abandonment, betrayal, neglect, and disinterest physical or sexual abuse, of course, keeping secrets, and lastly, parental perfectionism. And of course, people have all sorts of inner dramas, and like anything in life, it's spectrum, right? So we've got maybe a sibling was favored over you. There may have been um, a harsh authoritarian parent, a parent with you know perfectionistic issues. Maybe mom or dad struggled with their own eating disorder or as a child, a teenager, an adult, and now that's kind of coming out in the family and they're, uh, that's kind of leaking out, as they say, out of, you know, sideways and all the way up to, you know, emotional, physical and sexual abuse where somebody's violated. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, how related the shame blame game thing is to, you know, forgiving and letting go because all these characters and in your own script of your own play, if, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't resolved, you know, it follows us into adulthood, obviously. And these characters can end up, we can kind of end up seeking them out in our adult relationships. And this can sort of uh, keep it all alive and keep us very, very stuck. So Robert Karen explains this by, by telling us that um, the most relevant to the subject of forgiveness is how our dramas define the wounding we anticipate from others. He says, if you do not feel entitled, then anyone may be the depriver who was once your dad. If you're guilty, then anyone may be the jailer that was once your mom. If you're self-hating, then anyone may be seen as reproachful. If you're a martyr, then anyone may be taking advantage of you. If you must save those who are in distress, then anyone can become your burden. If you're the less loved sibling, then anyone may be seen as playing favorites. If you've internalized an indicting voice, then anyone's criticism can make you the defendant in a hostile court. He explains this has a flip side to it as well, where we kind of, you know, look seeking out the flaws or maybe even raging over the flaws in other people or looking for people to fail. It's kind of as if we are, you know, maybe unconsciously, you know, seeking out perfection in other people, you know, so that they can be what they're supposed to be to us in order to make our lives right. Of course, this is all part of resentment, being resentful. And at least for me, the visual with resentment is just these huge, you know, gargantuan freestanding barbells. 
know, like like in weightlifting competition, and just the heaviness, just carrying that around all over the place and holding on to it so tightly. And once again, we don't do anything without some sort of payoff in it, which can be healthy or unhealthy, right? So what is the payoff with hanging on to resentment? Well, there are a few reasons. And Robert Unright says that we've all felt that initial euphoria created by a response of courage after another's offense. We will stand up for ourselves. We will resist. Resentment can give you a feeling not only of euphoria, but also of strength. Nurturing such a rewarding feeling can become a habit. And this type of you know, reward of the actual resentment has uh, definitely has its source in anger because anger is a quick path to feeling resentful if it's gone on too long. And here's the thing I, I want to explain because anger gets a bad rap when really it does have a role, a very healthy, protective role. It's only when it's, you know, kind of gone on for a while and unresolved, you know, that it kind of grows and builds and become and can become unhealthy. However, in, you know, initially it does have the job of, you know, uh, letting other people know when we you know, are about to be violated or have been violated. You know, anger says back the hell up. And it can be in response to being, you know, emotionally hurt, physically hurt, sexually hurt or violated. And or it can be something, you know, as somebody made a political comment knowing what your belief system is. Or maybe they made a comment about your partner's or parent's belief system or whatever. And that's a response. If we care about the person, it's a response, you know, that hurts them, it hurts us. And we should be angry. In fact, when I discuss anger with my students, I, I use an example of, you know, from the picture of their very best friend. And that could be a, certainly be a sibling also. And you know, about the role of anger. And let's say their sibling or young adult best friend has been dating somebody for a year and she or he is crazy in love with the other person. And all of a sudden, you know, you find out that that person, your best friend or brother or sister is so crazy about cheated on you and you just found out and your best friend or sibling doesn't know. How do you feel? You know, and my answer is, I hope you're angry. And if you, if you love your best friend or sibling, you know, a very healthy response would be to be really, really pissed off. So let's say that your best friend or brother, sister, uh, whoever, you know, finds out about this and, they confront the person head on, you know, the big argument and break up with that person. Well, good. You know, better you find out now than later. Right. So now if that all, they work through that and that's all, you know, they, after they go through the pain and the mud and everything and they come out on the other side, you know, in a, you know, and they, you know, in a better place, hopefully maybe even. However, if they kind of hang on to that, right. Not letting go not forgiving. And again, forgiving, we're not saying it gave the person a pass to cheat. No, we're saying we are con- we're making a conscious, conscious choice to move forward. Okay. So let's say they haven't done that and they just dig in with, you know, just dig in emotionally speaking with claws, hanging on, hanging on, hanging on and nurturing the original rush of standing up to that person for being wronged. 
And Robert Unright goes on to say that, you know, even once we become aware of the resentment uh, and that it's beginning to work against us, okay, we maybe feel the heaviness and feel the, you know, roadblock it is to personal growth. You know, we don't always know how to get it to leave because like anything else, resentment can become a habit, which is, of course, just a word for conditioned behavior. We might even do something healthy, like go for a run or, you know, do yoga or something. We feel good in that moment and maybe even for a little while afterwards. And then all of a sudden, the resentment just, you know, shows right back up. Of course, it's human nature to, to kind of migrate towards what's familiar, even if it isn't healthy. So the more familiar we become with resentment, the more it can grow and build and become an even stronger habit where we go from harboring some resentment to becoming a resentful person where it actually kind of becomes, you know, we say, as I like to say, bring it into the living room, it becomes, we identify with it and it you know, can actually, you know, kind of change who we are. And this is certainly why it's so, so, so important to become aware of why we're resentful, be, be aware of how we're feeling in general. And if this does come from, you know, childhood, to be open to investigating these feelings. Investigating does not mean to reside there and to get stuck. To simply look back and use a skill called reframing, okay, which means we, you know, we couldn't control what happened uh, for sure. And however, we can control how we choose to look at it as an adult person. So similar to the example we said a little bit ago about uh, the, the best friend who was cheated on, Robert Karen uses another example when he says, dad was ju- judgmental and put me down. And now when you do it, I re-inhabit my traumatized self and feel destroyed by you. You become a big person and I become a small, wounded person. He further explains that this inner drama is the mental representation of emotional scar tissue and that it is not brought to life solely by direct assault or what we uh, take to be such. He says we are able to imprison ourselves with much subtler provocation. And once again, I'm a big fan of skills over talents, not that it wouldn't be fun to be Einstein, Mozart, or Michael Phelps, um, but I like skills because it involves choice and effort, which means this gives us agency. It gives us control. It means if I make the choice and follow through and practice or rehearse, whatever it is, I will get better at it. <laughs> this is true with playing the violin, you know, football reframing and letting go and being honest. That's one of the things I love about Aristotle. He said that if we, if the whole world this is very paraphrased, if we all practiced honesty, like we practice playing a musical intru- instrument or a sport, think about how much better off the world would be. Well, this isn't different with practicing forgiveness and letting go. Now, of course, disclaimer, no one said it's easy. When we practice thought control, we practice letting go, it, you know, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of commitment and a lot of follow through, especially 
if um the, if the person was wronged you know in a you know with you know severely and was maybe even sexually violated that's obviously going to take more out of somebody than someone who's who said something very hurtful and this of course is in no way to minimize uh verbal or emotional abuse because obviously you know, on the far end of that you know a, a a toxic parent could say something like you know i wish you were never born to a child and that's every bit every bit as harmful as you know the worst sort of uh physical or sexual abuse too one of the wonderful things about being an adult is that we now have voice and choice and no matter what happened to us no matter what happened to us as children along the way we can now choose as grown-ups to let it go and once again i'm going with my definition well it's actually claudia black's definition that i chose to incorporate into my life that this has you know forgiveness in my world has not a thing to do with forgetting and everything to do with remembering and choosing to move forward. It's about making the choice. This is important to to kind of understand because many people are kind of, you know, waiting for the, the clouds to part and the heavens to open up and they get hit with this, you know, forgiveness bolt and it all just happens. And that is just not how it works. It takes actively making a choice. Now, obviously, the spectrum thing, again, if somebody had something enormously violating happened, you know, last night, well, it may not happen today, obviously. And though at a certain point, really what happens is, and I, they say this in the 12-step programs, is when we to get done, you know, when we become sick and tired of being sick and tired, this is often when we make the choice to move forward and take our control back. And because when we, you know, when we blame someone else, you know, we have this illusion of power, right? We have this illusion of being on top when in reality it's, it's the opposite, right? It takes our power away and it's a way to avoid accountability and to take responsibility. And we're not talking about the, you know, the, the wrongdoing, you know, the act itself. We're talking about, you know, owning, you know, our own, our own control uh, as far as what we interpret and keep. And this is also true when we blame ourselves. This is also a way to avoid accountability. In fact, uh, Robert Karen says, like the blaming of others, self-blame is often a means around accountability. There is no useful taking of responsibility, no enlightenment, no repair. To blame oneself like this is to disappear from the playing field, to limp away wounded and unavailable, crippled and useless. Even if we talk about, you know, harmful messages from childhood, all the way along the whole whole spectrum, harmful things, when we don't, you know, kind of take charge of our own thinking, um, Robert Karen said it's like taking, you know, whatever that parent said and turning it into a dagger to plunge into one's own heart. It's like saying, look how awful I am, which, you know, coexists quite nicely with you don't exist at all. He also says it's, it's also a not so subtle act of aggression. See what you've done to me. 
And here, too, the blaming system yields a collapse of initiative and connection, as well as the flinging off of any chance to get closer to knowing who one really is. You know, and that it makes and it also makes sense that we would, you know, therefore unconsciously seek out, you know, this kind of behavior. In fact, I'm having a memory of, you know, years ago, years and years ago, uh, watching a few Dr. Phil episodes, because that was one of his themes that he would or things, something he brought up frequently is that self punishment is extremely reinforcing. And it makes sense if we grew up in an environment where we became comfortable with, you know, unkind things said to us. Well, it makes, you know, great sense that that's what would, you know, have us being comfortable as adults. So last, you know, sort of form of blaming we're going to discuss is regret, because I think that's also a big one. And certainly, you know, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, we all done the shoulda, coulda, woulda thing where, you know, things could have turned out better, things we could, you know, fix, rectify. That's, that's, I think that's very common for most people. But Robert Karen explains that like shame and guilt, regret can also be an obsessive form of self-blaming and self-nulling. Some examples are, you know, dialogue such as, I never studied, I wasted my youth, I neglected my health. I got caught up in a cult or a cause and wasted years of my life in the process. I threw away love. I slept with him too soon. I had an abortion I should not have had. I missed the stock market boom. I made terrible mistakes. Whack, 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 whack. And he says, why can't we look back in sadness, you know, kind of feel the pain and then move on? And he says it again. It's a, it's a problem of basically the grieving process didn't either happen or didn't you know, kind of be, wasn't completed. And that he says it's a problem of failing only now it's in a different form. What's, what's very interesting, um, it makes a whole lot of sense, is that, um, you know, reset, obsessive regretting, you know, not letting go, not moving forward, can have a kind of paradoxical quality to it in that, you know, we're continuing to do the very thing that we're regretting, right? So Robert Karen says, you blame yourself because of what you didn't do back then. But why back then didn't you do it? Because you were in some unentitled, anti-self-depressive hole. Regret keeps you in that hole. There's the mark of enmeshment. It's a way of not separating from whatever it was. And this, of course, takes us right back to our conversation you know, on the ego, the, the contemporary concept of the ego and how the ego will do anything to stay alive. And then it fills itself up with all these needs. Just it, the ego is just one big need needing to rescue, to be appreciated, constant reassurance. And also, sadly, the need to to punish ourselves. Robert Karen further explains that like other forms of blame. Through regret, we deny ourselves the space to be. There's no, there is no right to explore, to struggle, to make mistakes, to not know. There is no forgiving voice that says, you were being you, and that was all you could have done at that time. There's only bitterness and grudge. Obsessive regret is how we submit and get defeated. 
often it is little more than revenge against the self. So, winding it all up and bringing it home here, we want to first express the importance of awareness. This is key. This is first, because obviously we cannot do what we do not know. And as as a good friend uh, once said to me, once we become aware, however, we are responsible. So we cannot do what we do not know. Once we become aware, we have responsibility to ourselves and others. As this awareness develops, you know, as far as how we're feeling, it's very, very important to allow ourselves to feel. doesn't mean reside there. It means to just work through it. And when I say to my students about anger in particular, and you can fill it in with resentment or whatever, is I think of, uh, I think when I was eight years old fishing, actually, I'm not a big fisher woman. It was just a summer thing. But we'd catch these, they would look like little baby catfish. I think we called them bullheads. And they had these prickly little kind of sticky little things that stuck out of their rod by their gills. And they had kind of sandpaper skin and, you know, little razor teeth. And you go to catch them and you get stuck. And they're also very slimy. And so what I'd say to my students, it's kind of like catch and release fishing when you have anger or resentment. When you catch one of these slimy little baby catfish, you just hold it, feel the slime, feel the pricklies, you know, maybe get, you know, rub your fingers on the, on the razor teeth, feel it all, feel it all until you're so sick of the slime and the little pricklies and the razor teeth that you're done and you throw it back in. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's important for us to be validated. Then once kind of, you know, validate it and hold it and, and then we let it go. We let it go. You know, even with, you know, my passion of positive psychology, Marty Seligman, the father of po- positive psychology, says that positive psychology is not happyology. It's about for sure not ignoring the negative feelings, once again, though, not residing there, but to let us feel and acknowledge what we're feeling and then choose, make a conscious choice to shift out of that place to a more, you know, more positive path of thinking. And this, of course, uh, brings us to one of the main themes of this Minecraft podcast series, which is, you know, learning to become the boss of our brain and to realize that thoughts come first and feelings come second. So if we're walking around thinking resentful thoughts, we will then feel resentful. If we're walking around feeling or thinking regretful thoughts, we will then feel regretful. They can be from five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. We can bring it all alive again by thinking about it. You know, in becoming the boss of our brain, means just that. We are the boss of our brain and we can make a conscious choice to stop this negative feedback loop of toxic internal dialogue. We can question these thoughts ripping through our minds and we can fact check. We can also disagree with the thought chatter and choose to discard the thoughts we don't want keeping only the truth, keeping what's positive. And remember the skill of reframe. Though we may not have been able to have control as a child for whatever happened, now as an adult, what we have control of is how we choose to think 
about the situation. And maybe the post-traumatic growth piece. You know, there's a lot of talk about post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. Also, Marty Seligman means whatever happened was horrible. It happened and we came out, you know, maybe a better person for it, maybe more empathetic, fill in the blank. This is where the reframing comes in and turning whatever happened into something that works for us, that's positive, that we can grow from. We don't need to wait for an apology. Why? Because we don't care. Okay? It might not mean anything anyway. And it might, but we don't need to wait for it. Our forgiveness and our letting go is on our time. We choose when to let it go because we're taking our power back. In fact, the person may no longer be on this earth, and we're certainly not getting an apology. So right there is the logic. And also remember that there is only so much emotional energy we have in one day. We only have, we're working with 100% we get up every morning to give to our family and our friends and our work, our passions, all of it. So when we give five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, two hours on the way into work, ruminating over whatever, over something that was, you know, over long ago, what a sacrifice. Think of that. There's nothing more valuable than our life minutes. So if we truly, you know, are, are, you know, hang on to this upset that happened years ago, think about this. We are handing this, handing over our power to the wrongdoer or perpetrator on a silver platter. We're just giving it to them. Time to take it, time to take it back. Forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. I mean, from the secular standpoint. And once again, please work it into whatever your belief system is, whatever works for you, because a gift is a gift. Forgiveness is just so freeing and so liberating and something we can learn to practice and get better better at. Isn't it fantastic? And lastly, I think I mentioned that Oprah is one of my closest friends. She just isn't aware. Well, I also am quite a fan of of Dr. Jake's, and they they did a thing on forgiveness uh, together once, and I, I just just a, a one liner I will just that will stay with me I think forever. And Dr. Jake's was talking about not forgiving, being like a cancer, you know, just ripping through the body. And think about how true that is, because when we don't forgive, think about what that does to our body. Hanging on to that, the actual somatic, you know, manifestations of that indigestion into the extreme ulcers, never mind high blood pressure, just all of it. And yet when we forgive, it not only does it give us all our emotion, you know, our emotional energy back that we were sacrificing, it also, you know, increases the quality of our life, physiologically speaking. Not forgiving, as Dr. Jake says, like the cancer, not only corrodes our, corrodes us emotionally, but it, you know, it, it corrodes us, the body, physically. You know, and then in the reference to, you know, we only have so much emotional energy in the day, paraphrase, okay, so I'm not looking at it at this minute, Dr. Jakes says, you know, hanging on to our past history is not worth the expense of our destiny. And this is a one-liner that I live by, absolutely live by. Whoever it was that did whatever just isn't worth it. You know, they're not, they're just not worth sacrificing any more valuable life minutes and all the potential that we have in front of us 
just not worth it. And I remember uh, Oprah in that moment smiling, his big smile, and just saying, that was a pump moment right there. That was a pump moment. I couldn't agree more. Hanging on to our past history is not worth the expense of our destiny. Let it go. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Uh-huh.